Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The wait is over. New episodes of The Walking Dead Season 10 are premiering early February 21st on AMC+. Don't miss the extended 10th season featuring six new episodes, each focused on fan-favorite characters. Prepare for all new high-stakes showdowns and emotional reckonings by catching up on the latest season before new episodes drop. With season binges, exclusive content, and early access to new episodes, the best Walking Dead experience is only on AMC+. Get lost in the Walking Dead universe today. Available ad-free and on demand. Sign up at amcplus.com. AMC+, only the good stuff. This holiday season, we're getting drunk. Join Emily and Flo as they drink their way through December with a different festive genre each week as voted for by you. Action. Horror. Classic. What is eggnog? Children. Never really had a glass of milk anymore. And never seen before. I've never seen Die Hard. So grab a sherry and a mince pie and join in the fun. Why this film's Drunk Christmas starts December the 1st. But you know, I think that's a part of growing up. You just, you get like these cartoons put immeasurable guilt on you about stuff you can't control and you just live with it. And that's life. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas! Welcome back to Why This Film, the podcast where we reach back into your childhood, pluck out a movie, give it a rewatch, and have a chat about it. I'm Emily Slade, and welcome back. You watched it so many times before, and now you're gonna watch it again. But it's been so many years since you last saw it, and now you show it to your friends, and they're like, What? What am I watching? Why? Th- what? Is what? This? Why? Why this film? And I'm joined today by Josh from the Triple C Podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm delighted Absolutely. to be here. You're more than welcome. We're very happy to have you. I say we, but it's just me. It's, but like, it, you know, it makes it sound more special when I say we. Um, very exciting. Your chosen movie is Citizen Kane, 1941, the IMDb breakdown. Following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. Why this film? Um, there's a lot of different answers, but the long and the short of it for me is that Growing up, I've always, ever, going back to when I was a kid, I've always loved old movies. Uh, the classic era of Hollywood is one of my favorite. For all the problems that plagued that, pe- that period in movie making, Abuse. the misogyny and the sexism and the racism, there yeah. was so much great content that was produced back then. And Citizen Kane still stands head and shoulders above so much other content that was produced from that period not just because it was Orson Welles' first movie, it was his breakout production, 
in Hollywood, but because so much of what he did as a storyteller, as the director, and as the lead has gone on to inspire generations of movie makers to come. It's why when you talk to anybody at a film school, or if you talk to any director who may have even had an inkling of interest in Orson Welles, they could do a deep dive into why they love his work from any number of different perspectives. And even though I am not a director, a writer, an actor, a cinematographer, any of those things, I am first and foremost a movie junkie. And Orson Welles is my biggest fix of them all. Okay. So how old were you when you first watched this movie? I had to have been about seven, eight years old. And it was right around the time when we finally got cable and I discovered the network Turner Classic Movies, which I don't know if they have that uh, over there in the UK. In the States, Turner Classic Movies is just a TV channel that is devoted to classic films all the time. So anything and everything from the Maltese Falcon to Casablanca to, oh gosh, Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, you name it, they'll have done it. And I remember channel flipping one day. It was a weekend and Citizen Kane was on. They were doing some sort of salute to Orson Welles. And of of course, I realized years later, they were of course going to kick off with Citizen Kane. And I just fell in love with the movie. I fell in love with the energy. I fell in love with the cast, especially, especially Orson, because I learned more about him as I grew up and I got older. And also because it was such a strange movie. It's the character of Charles Foster Kane, who is a newspaper magnate, who is a very prominent public figure, rich as they come, two very broken marriages, and then his final utterance is Rosebud. And so the whole movie is this mystery of what is this? Who is this? Is there this connection to Rosebud? And it's all about a reporter named Mr. Thompson going around and interviewing all of Kane's living connections, his best, his former best friend, Jedediah Leland, his manager, Mr. Bernstein, his second wife, Susan Alexander, reading through the papers of his mentor, uh, William Thatcher, trying to uncover who or what was Rosebud. And that is interspersed with great flashback sequences to the life of Charles Foster Kane, how he was just a little boy growing up, his parents ran a boarding house. And then long story short, his mother accepts as payment from a boarder the deed to what became a very profitable load of gold. And so she signs control of all of it over to this gentleman, Mr. Thatcher, and instructs him to raise her son with the finest schooling and the finest education so that he can, when he comes of age at 25, have complete control over this money. So it's all about this little boy who literally has nothing and becomes one of the most well-known and at times respected media influencers of the and yellow journalists of the 19th century. Whew, I'm sorry, that's a mouthful. No, yeah, you summed it up perfectly. I mean, Citizen Kane, we've all heard of Citizen Kane. We all know of Citizen Kane. Whether we've all seen Citizen Kane is a whole other question. But I'd heard of Citizen Kane. I'd never seen Citizen Kane. And I knew Citizen Kane was important. And it, I, I never really knew why. And I would Google it and it wouldn't really tell me. Now, going into this movie, I did know what Rosebud was and what it mm-hmm. meant. Which 
I would say does sort of take away from it for me because I think I would have found a better enjoyment if I didn't know what Rosebud was. Now, of course, like most things, if you do know that the ship is going to sink at the end of Titanic, it doesn't stop the story from being good. Um, I had been putting off watching Citizen Kane for literally years because I had such a chip on my shoulder about it where I was like this is the movie to end all movies this is the movie that apparently is the greatest movie of all time and I just cannot imagine it being so today um I watched it and I see why it blew people away and I can totally see why a seven-year-old watching it for the first time on a weekend would be blown away because I had similar experiences with movies from around the same era the the Wizard of Oz the Red Shoes all of these movies that I watched when I was quite young that that captured me um, in a way that modern movies can't um I don't think I'm a complete kid, Citizen Kane convert um coming off the end of it but we'll see by the end of this episode as to whether you can convince me otherwise um, I thought he is a character and I know this is the point, but he is a character. He's a, he's a prick. Um, and like, that is the point, but there, there comes a, a point where I'm just like, I'm bored of dickhead men. <laughs> um, and, and I knew that about Citizen Kane before I even really knew any, anything about Citizen Kane, which I think is why I put it off for so long, but it is very clever and it's very well put together and it's very well acted and you cannot, even if you dislike it, you cannot say it is a bad film because it is not. Which is very rare because normally when a person says whether they are a critic or even the average person on the street moviegoer, this is a bad movie and here's why, they, it, it sticks. Whereas if you say you don't like Citizen Kane, you just, you don't like Citizen Kane but it's there's honestly nothing that is actually wrong with it because yeah. its structure is great. Like I said, the cast is amazing and the story is compelling. And also this is for everyone out there who must possibly has ever aspired or been interested in being the person that makes the movie come to life. Like you're the, you're the window that through which we see all of that transpires. Wells used brand new groundbreaking techniques in cinematography for his movie. And he completely yeah. abolished the tr traditional linear narrative by using flashbacks to move the story. And the two mm -hmm. biggest camera techniques he used were the deep focus and also using, I want to make sure I get the proper term right, low angle shots. So for example, any shot for maybe when they were in the offices of the Inquirer with uh, him and Joseph Cotton as Jed Leland, or any of the members of the Inquirer staff where the camera is focused on them, but it also focuses on the ceiling to give you a perspective of just how tall the room is that they're in, or the shots where uh, Susan Alexander is singing in the opera hall. And even though, of course, her career as an opera singer was a complete dud, but you get the great sense of how big this opera house that Charles Foster Kane has built for his wife because he's convinced that she's a great singer is mm -hmm. just this massive, lavish building. And that's something that you get now in movies because of Kane. Yeah. Uh, uh, for example, uh, Phantom of the Opera with uh, Gerard Butler. All those shots where you get like gorgeous cinematography of the opera house, of the stage and the ceiling. 
Or Does any... Joel Schumacher give us beautiful cinematography for the 2004 Phantom of the Opera? That's debatable, but I I'm see where you're coming I'm from. not saying that it's beautiful, but I'm saying the technique is there, mm. if not overtly. But Yeah, watching Citizen Kane, I was very, very conscious of just how influential this had been for cinema for centuries, arguably. Like, I know it hasn't been centuries, but it feels like it has been because everything was so familiar and it's really interesting when you come to a movie that is so renowned for kickstarting certain things but you've already seen those things everywhere because of this movie and you know i think another big thing about this movie was the overlapping dialogue when you're so when your entire lifetime has had media of overlapping dialogue and you go to a movie that's so highly regarded because of that thing that they did for the first time ever it's not astounding and it's not you're not there going well the overlapping dialogue here is very very good so you then have to turn to what's left and I think the reason Citizen Kane has lasted so long is because what's left is still good. I, when it started and there's a lot of voiceover, there's a lot of explanation as to who this man was before we even get into the main story of we need to find out what Rosebud means. And as I say, I already did know what Rosebud was. Um, I, I was a little bit sort of like, oh my God, come on, come on, come on, come on. And yet within half an hour, I I did find myself transfixed to the screen and there were such brilliant segments like the conversation he has with his first wife over the dinner table that shows the passage of time and essentially their marriage and the whole relationship with the uh, second wife, just all these things were so interesting and so cleverly and interestingly and imaginatively shot that I did find myself drawn to it in a way that I didn't expect to because I thought what made it so good would be tired and old now, but there is so much still there for a modern audience. And I think it is a real testament and it makes me physically sick that he wrote directed and starred in this at the age of like 24 it like it makes me ill i'm like, confused when you all say I could... ill. <laughs> I'm, I'm confused what do you mean when it say it makes you physically ill like i, I please oh. I, 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 i'm a little confused <laughs> by that statement um, it makes me feel sick to my stomach because when I compare to what I was doing at 24, where my like greatest achievement was like finishing an entire packet of Pringles in one sitting or something. And meanwhile, Orson Welles has created Citizen Kane. <laughs> I'm like, ah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's really hard to compare ourselves. Now, there are certainly modern people whether they are tech influencers or actors or people or even just you and me where we do things and it's like this is really amazing but Orson Welles he was called the boy genius for a reason and it wasn't just his ego it was and and he did have a bit of an ego but he had earned it because he was brilliant I mean when I say really earn an ego (laughs) let me he had earned the reputation of being a genius because he was a genius um uh, three very prominent examples before he went into motion pictures the first and most famous being mercury theater on the air the night the late 1930s war of the world's production that was treated as an actual news broadcast and sent the entire nation into an uproar thinking that martians had invaded new jersey and were marching on the states 
No one had ever done that before. No one had ever conceived that before. And that is why that is still a piece of Halloween media that is talked about to this day alongside Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and TV shows like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which you just discussed with our friend Tess over on OCD Podcast, along with, I forget who from Ready to Retro. Chelsea from Mm -hmm. Ready to Retro. Like that production, it's a radio drama, but it still holds as much power as even the best Halloween TV show or movie show or movie production. Yes, you know, it's the train pulling into the station. It's it's famous for its reaction. And um, on that, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And this was another thing that drew me to this movie that whilst I was... I had problems with it. I absolutely adored the fact that he had basically set up his own theater company. Ah. And when he did this movie, the Mercury Theater Company, and when he did this movie, he was like, I'm gonna employ all my friends and they're gonna play all the characters. And so at the end, you get this wonderful little slideshow of like, the Mercury Theatre would like to present several actors who, for this is their this is their first motion picture. Um, here they all are. They've never been on screen before. Isn't this exciting? And I was like, that is the fucking dream, isn't it? To just set up a theatre company and do a bunch of wacky bullshit that takes the world by storm, and then do the number one American movie for like thirty years and just cast all of your mates in it who have never been who have never done screen acting before and have a great time. Uh, I mean, he didn't have a great time. I imagine he was incredibly stressed and overwhelmed because to be a genius, you also have to be like kind of rubbish at life before you like don't eat and whatever. But um, what a dream, like what a, what a great guy to just be like, mm, I'm going to cast all my friends. Okay. Thanks. Bye. And it's also the, the thing that I love about that is that he also launched the careers of so many well-known performers just right off the top of my head agnes moorhead she plays his mother in this movie we all know her and love her for being andora on bewitched but no way yeah, that's agnes moorhead that's andora she got <laughs> oh her my start, God. she got her start in the mercury theater and her and and her breakout into motion pictures was because she played or uh, charles foster kane's mother you know, that's oh one scene in the movie. That's one scene. But that scene helped catapult her into being a star. Oh my God, what a babe. I love her so much. Oh, she is absolute. <laughs> Agnes Moorhead was a, was a treasure, an absolute treasure. But to talk about, you were talking about uh, Wells himself. Yeah, he was a bit of an animal. Uh, it's from Wikipedia, but there's a hyperlink to it that I will pull up later to send to you for your show notes. He worked 16 to 18 hours a day on the film, starting at 4 a.m. because special effects had, at that point, were needed to age him for certain scenes because he played Charles Foster Kane from young adulthood in his 20s all the way to old age. And if you Mm -hmm. did not know what Orson Welles looked like back then, and by, I would even say, by modern standards, when he was a young man, Orson Welles was a very attractive individual. He had a very roguish charm, but the special effects to age him is phenomenal. Yeah, he brilliant. looks like he's in his 60s or 70s or however old Kane is supposed to be when he passes away. He, he almost looks like a different actor. He looks like an actor that looks vaguely like Orson Welles, who was old, that they got in. Like, he looks je- authentically old, right. which is very... 
crazy to think about when you compare it to I'm just trying to think of other like sort of similar 1940s movies where to do old if they were casting a a younger actor it would just be talcum powder in the hair or whatever and right. call it a day but this person is authentic it's that authenticity that makes it so dang brilliant yeah another thing about Citizen Kane that I enjoy is the history of the movie and for all your listeners out there who don't know the the character of Charles Foster Kane the story of Charles Foster Kane is primarily inspired by William Randolph Hearst who was even at the point when the movie came out one of the biggest newspaper publishers in the western world he owned and operated some of the biggest and most well-known papers in America, he was an influential individual and his power was far reaching to the point that when he found out that Wells was making this movie and he could immediately read between the lines that it was meant to be about him, he actually tried to block it. Oh he almost God, terrifying. He he told major theaters throughout the country, if you play this movie, I will encourage my papers to blacklist your, your, your movie houses so that it ended up being played on smaller theaters in smaller American markets. But it still was an amazing movie. It won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for, for Orson and his co-screenwriter, Herman J. Mankiewicz. I also read, though, um, stuff that really made me laugh. Um, let me see if I can get it up here. God, there's so many. Da, 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 da. Despite all the publicity, the film was a box office flop, possibly due to what you've just mentioned, and was quickly consigned to the RKO vaults. At 1941's Academy Awards, the film was booed every time one of its nine nominations was announced. It was only re-released to the public in the mid-50s. And to think that this is the movie that graces the top of every single bloody greatest movies ever made list, and at the Academy Awards, people were booing it. Um, was that a reaction from its sort of uh, inspirational figure threatening people? Or was it just because people were like, eh, <laughs> I hate this movie? <laughs> I'm convinced, and I, I need to go back and do the research, which, by the way, I have a lot of books about Orson to recommend to your listeners and to you because he is a man for which many books have been written that it was because of Hearst and because of Hearst telling people this movie is terrible, don't go see it. And so it was quite literally the power of the negative press because it was not long ago that people were saying that Orson was one of the most brilliant young minds in theater because, mm -hmm. and to just to backtrack because it, it's all part of the, like, as much as we're talking about Citizen Kane, you can't not talk about Orson Welles because Orson Welles is Citizen Kane. It's true. And I don't know if that's partly what always put me off, this sort of enormously hauteur in the same way that you can't talk about Psycho without talking about Hitchcock. Like, I really... But then arguably you can't talk about Shaun of the Dead without talking about Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. So, right. you know, there are ones that I'm like, ugh, gross. And then there are ones that I'm like, oh, yeah, fair enough. And I think it does just fundamentally come down to the fact that, you know, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg didn't abuse their actresses or whatever. But... um right. It's interesting. Citizen Kane is all about fake news, really. It it's, really is. It's terrifying that in 1941, they were having this argument of the 
young upstart being like, we need to put the gossip columns into our paper and the old fashioned newspaper runners being like, this is a newspaper. We need to report the news. And even back in the 1940s, they were like, but to sell because capitalism, ha ha ha. Um, we need to, we need to print what people are going to read in the masses. We need to basically sink into the human psyche as to what they cavemanly are drawn to and print that. So then they'll buy our newspaper rather than having an obligation to report facts and truth, which of course in this day and age is an utterly terrifying conversation that we're right in the middle of where facts and truth are meaningless and newspapers do not report the news at all. And you have to actually dig to find a, a, an accurate account or even an account that tells you anything at all. Um, and this was 1941. And that's another reason why I was watching this. And I was like, boo, every time Charles Foster Kane said anything. <laughs> You're not meant to love the character of Kane. No. If anything, <laughs> the only sympathy you feel is for the little boy at the beginning of his story. No, and this is the thing. I knew what Maybe. Rosebud was. And I was watching this film. And like, spoiler alert, we're going to say what Rosebud is. It's his sled. It's, it's, it's his sled. Citizen Kane. When I say but, um, when I say sympathy, because he ha he is you are meant away. to you are you, you are meant to you are absolutely meant to take that in its original viewing, despite the fact that um, Orson Welles later went on to be like, oh, I thought it was a bit cheesy and a bit Freudian, whatever. Like, regardless of that, you mm -hmm. are absolutely meant to read this as what a shit person. And then at the very end, they burn his sledge, which has the name Rosebud on it, and you go, oh, but this boy never asked for any of this to happen to him, and he was taken away from his mother prematurely because she thought she was doing the right thing to him, but all he ever really needed was the family love, and, and oh, it's such a shame, and all oh, the American dream has really got out of hand here, isn't it? It's Gatsby in the pool all over again but i'm so over the american dream and i'm so over of the like young privileged rich men making bad choices and then us having to feel sorry for them that i was still just like burn it burn him it's a completely fair point <laughs> i would still regardless of the character i would still feel bad for any young child who is ripped away from their family for the sake of trying to give them a better life regardless yes. of who they are, what their background is. That is what I was talking about in terms of sympathy. As a character, Absolutely. as a character, Charles Foster Kane is a prick. I mean, the fact that he yeah. quite literally, just because his best friend, who he known since their school days, going to all these different universities, actually prints an honest review about his wife's performance as an opera singer, and he says, "You're Jedediah, you're fired," and it's just like, and then they don't speak anymore. And that's and he and he'd been with him since the very beginning when they when he first bought the Inquirer, and I'm just like he is a prick. You're not meant to love Charles Foster Kane, but what and, you can you love, know. yeah, sorry. What, what well, what you can love is the story itself. If yes. there is one thing I want anyone to take away from our discussion, it is that the the story is compelling. It it is. It keeps you going because there are so many different threads that are tugged on. To, make, to bring the picture of who this fictional newspaper magnet and media influencer was to life. Whether, again, Absolutely. it's his business manager, his best friend, his ex-wife, or the memoirs of his mentor. It's very, it's a very interesting concept. Like it's a, you know, if someone pitched it to you, you'd be like, ooh, ooh, yeah, go on then, go on then. Like, let's see what you got to say about that then. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like it, it is sympathetic and it is compelling and it is good. Like, I really think I've, I've unfortunately come here um, 
after many a film studies lesson where Citizen Kane is bandied around so much, it's, it's become, the concept of Citizen Kane to me has become so separate from what Citizen Kane actually is. And I still, it's still too fresh to, to sync the two up together to make it right. Yeah, I still have this concept of what Citizen Kane is and what it stands for and having watched the movie and the two were sort of fighting against each other so much. I bet I'll listen to this episode in like a month's time and be like, good God, like it, calm down, Emily. Like Citizen Kane's great, like what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but it's still so fresh for me as having the like, been whipped by Citizen Kane as a film student for so long without ever seeing it and then seeing it and being like, oh, it's a lot of white men shouting in a room. Like, <laughs> and it, it's not that, obviously it's not that. It would not have passed the test of time if it was just that. Um, it, it is up there with The Wizard of Oz and Casablanca as it deserves to be seen by modern audiences. Um, there are some really, really brilliant shots and uh, use of cinematography in it. Um, but it's, it's so difficult because you almost can't separate the making of Citizen Kane with Citizen Kane. You can't talk about whether you enjoyed the characters and the story without having to justify either with the cinematography and and as you say you can't separate Orson Welles from it either and I think that's another thing that I find so complicated about these types of movies where you're unable to just be like I liked it or I didn't like it there's always right. this need to justify and there's always this need to take the history into consideration and it's not a bad thing it's just a complicated thing and it can be quite frustrating to feel like you can't just have a very simple opinion about what is fundamentally a, a piece of entertainment, I think. I don't know. You're right. You're absolutely right. And maybe it's because I've been a fan of this movie my whole life. I've reached that point where I can actually say I am a fan of Citizen Kane for ABCD XYZ reasons and separate it from Orson Welles. That's just it. Because as a person, as much as I love Wells for being a creative genius, and he was even right up until the day he died, he did things that were not very good. He was, I mean, he had multiple failed marriages. When he was married to his wife for the longest time, Paula Mari, he was cheating on her with Oya Kadar. That is horrible. I do not condone that kind of crap for an instant. However, for as much as his moral failings were, the man was still a very brilliant storyteller and a very brilliant actor. And yes. I would like to go on the record right now. If I were to meet Orson Welles, even <laughs> if it meant that I, after I had probably geeked out for five minutes and asked for his signature on like a menu or a scrap of paper, if I knew what I knew about him today back then, I would have called him out completely. I would have been like, what is wrong with you, dude? You've got a loving wife, a great kid. What is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? And if he never spoke to me again, if I was told, like, in that big thunderous uh, uh, Othello or, you know, Shakespearean voice that he had later in life because of his years of, like, acting and stuff to get the hell out and I never want to see your face in this town again, I could live with that. Knowing <laughs> that I called out my hero for having feet of clay. I acknowledge that he has feet of clay, and I am not broken by it. Rather, I am emboldened 
to, tr to, to take that example and not be like that as a person. Now, if I want to take the Bad. example of him creatively, oh, if I could be even a tenth of what he was in his early 20s, <laughs> oh, I would be as happy as a dang clam. <laughs> How did he have the opportunity? How was he able to do Citizen Kane at the age of 24? Who gave him the money? It was did he R apply? Uh, no, it was RKO, the movie company. They Because by, again, part of it is because he grew up just being a very brilliant young boy. When he was a kid, he was actually a student at the Todd School for Boys here in Illinois. He was originally born in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then at one point he was schooled here at down at the Todd School for Boys, which is here in Illinois. And even at a young age, he was writing plays and doing theater work. So he was already just very brilliant by even young student, young boy standards. And it just mm -hmm. carried with him all the way into his adulthood. And the two most well-known theater pieces that he did in the 30s, that also, as well as his radio career, were that for the Federal Project, which was a, um, the Federal Project, a quick piece of history. I'm trying to find it right here. Ba -ba -ba. Give me one second. The Federal Theater Project was a program that was established as part of the New Deal to fund artistic performances and entertainment. So it was a Roosevelt New Deal program. His right. He did what is commonly known as Voodoo Macbeth, which is where he <laughs> took Shakespeare's Macbeth and did an all-black cast set in a, and, in, and set in Haiti with a Haitian background. So that right there, the fact that he was willing to completely divide conventional theater standards at that point and cast in an all- black cast mm -hmm. is crazy and people actually tried to shut it down yeah, because they surprise me. and he was only 20 years old at the time uh there just... are uh, newsreel you can actually find newsreel clips uh of the of the uh, performance and if you think for an instant that it was going to be campy or hokey find the newsreel clips it's actually really brilliant the sound quality oh, is no the sound quality for the clips is not good because we're talking about mm -hmm. mid-1930s newsreel, but it is enough yeah. that you can hear the dialogue, and it's the same energy and power that you would expect from anyone doing Shakespeare. So you've got his all-African-American cast of Macbeth, and then a few years later, he did... Are you familiar with the film Me and Orson Welles that starred Zac Efron? About uh, the, yeah, you know, it was Zac Efron, yeah. Yeah, that, is, that movie is a telling of the perspective of a young boy who loves theater and talks his way into what was at that point Wells's most second well-known theatrical production a fascist rendition of Shakespeare's Julius Julius Caesar and as much as much as um you know his all his uh his voodoo Macbeth is brilliant his fascist Caesar is even more crazy because it literally is meant to be a slam against uh, the, the fascist uh, Nazi and Italian governments at that point. And this is several years before the war started, by the way. Mm. But he cast everybody in modern dress, Caesar and all of the uh, conspirators and everybody, Mark Antony, they all wear uniforms that are completely reminiscent of, of Nazi and Italian military uniforms. It's fascinating. Like, no doubt he was a genius. He was ahead of his time. He was creative and imaginative. It's, you know, and I, I never want to take that away from him. It's, it's funny, though, that the known genius always also happens to have opportunity and budgets.
like there was probably brilliant versions of Shakespeare in the minds of many young Americans out there, but they didn't, you know, they oh. weren't white men and they weren't given the opportunity to put them on a stage in the same way. That's true. But I mean, with Mercury Theater, he didn't, all the money, he was pouring his own money into it. That's just it for every. So he, he had money to pour into it. Well, yeah, I'm but... bitter, okay? <laughs> no, no. And you have absolutely every right to be bitter. But when I say he was willing to stake everything that he had, which wasn't even a lot back then because mainly he was getting money from doing radio. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can't imagine that he, even for all his brilliant uh, stagecraft and vocal work, was being paid lavish amounts of money for being on the radio and doing programs like The Shadow or The Little Theater off Times Square and then turning around and immediately dumping everything back into making his theatrical productions great. So as mm -hmm. much as, yeah, he was using his own money, it's the same thing about like, say, and obviously I'm comparing, I'm comparing one white guy to another, but it's, it's like with Kevin Smith and how he completely used every single scrap of money he had to make clerks. You know, he maxed out all of his credit cards. He sold his entire comic book collection and used the money from an insurance policy for a car wreck just to make clerks. That's what I'm trying to say is that he was willing to stake everything he had, even if it meant bankruptcy, to mm -hmm. make something great. And I, and, I would say, and I would say if we were to do a lot of deep research, there's other directors throughout history men and women of or you know and even from different ethnic backgrounds like you know i'm i i need to do more research because there are yeah, movies from no, other I countries saying i'm just using i'm just using orson as an example in terms of willing to stake everything to make and something great there might be example as well where they've staked everything and it's not paid off so then and, you never yeah. hear about them and that's, and, and that's, that's tragic. And I think that's the crux of it that i'm bitter about because i don't think i have the guts to do what they did and that annoys me that i'm not willing to throw everything to the wind on one thing i feel like i have to dig myself holes and have backups and they didn't do it and that bravery for their art is really admirable and something that i'm i'm quite jealous of i think i'm jealous is mainly too. why i'm like shut oh. up citizen kane <laughs> i'm you talk about jealous I love comic books. That's one of the things we talk about all the time on the Triple C podcast. And I, if I could do what Jack Kirby, for example, you know, co-creator of the Fantastic Four, of the Avengers, of Captain America and the X-Men, you know, he created Darkseid and the New Gods for DC and Etrick and the Demon and stuff. If I could do even a little of what he or Joe Kubert or Ramona Fraden, who she is still alive. She is a scrappy woman. She's in her nineties and she's, and you can get commissions from her by the way. Oh uh, quick thing. She was the one that made Aquaman even more cool in the sixties. She was the artist on Aquaman in the sixties. So she made him look even better than he did by 1940s artistic standards. Look her up. She's amazing. If I could do okay. anything that artists like Ramona, like Jack Kirby, like Amanda Connor, Right now, who does all the work? On, who who does a lot of the work on Harley Quinn with her husband Jimmy Palmiotti? I, mm -hmm. if I could draw like that, I would feel like the I would feel like the greatest human being in the world. Not out of ego, because it's like I don't know how I'm able to do this, but I can do this, and it's and I'm so blessed to be able to do this. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that is one of the reasons why I trumpet Orson so much is because he had that gift. 
And instead of just staying where he was in life, he pushed. He, mm-hmm. he stands as an example for people everywhere who want to break into motion pictures. Be unconventional. Be afraid to take risks. Yeah. And as much as he was unfortunately blackballed by the Hollywood community because they couldn't understand his his perspectives and his creative genius. And I say genius not out of a sense of fanboyism, but because if you were to also look at his other works, he was a darn genius. He was mm-hmm. willing to take chances. And back then, not a lot of people were willing to take as many chances as he was. Oh, there were scripts and movies that were brilliant, but to push the boundaries of like the, like the camera techniques we were talking about that we see today in modern motion pictures. Back then, you didn't get that. You got simple mm-hmm. pan shots, close-ups, tracking shots maybe, or static shots. You didn't get that to, yeah. like you do today. And he, was, and, he, and he was willing to be advantageous. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I sound like such a... No, sound like completely another... props to him. Um, I want at some point in my life to have... And a classic, because as much as he did break convention with his shots, he also did stick to convention with a couple. He Namely, the absolute tradition of the the oh the soft close up of the woman with the light in the particular angle that mm. makes her cheekbones highlighted. Yeah, with the fluttering of the eye. I want that on my face. I want the black and white because it's like normal, normal, normal. Everyone here is a human. And then we like zoom in and suddenly there's like a supermodel on screen and then we zoom out and everyone's being normal human actors. And then we zoom in and it's like, it's like time slows down when you have those zoom. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There's like close up beauty shots, usually of women that look like they're under the moonlight. I love them. Like this is what I'm ramping up to. I think they're fucking great because they are, tonally not like anything else in the scenes ever and they appear in so many movies of that era just to be like and this is our beautiful actress here she is being super hot and you're like okay okay that's fine and if we're talking Um, about uh if we're talking about actresses uh dorothy Comingor, who played uh susan alexander his second wife the makeup on her when she's older and being interviewed by Thompson, yeah. that is some crazy good makeup. Because if you look yeah. at pictures of Dorothy Cummingore at that point in time, she was a knockout. She was a very attractive woman. And the, the makeup to show her as this aged, bitter, alcoholic singer, which is very tragic that she is reduced to singing in nightclubs and she's stereotypically the, you know, broke, like she's almost stereotypically a broken human, but it also... Yeah. Like it's more, that's not just who her character is, but it's almost cliche at the same time, the makeup and the performance in those scenes, her bitterness, her anger, and her just like, I have nothing to say about Charlie. You know, I got nothing to say about him is so powerful, even for those few, few, few moments. Yeah, man. So, um, when you were a kid, I can't, and you know, stop me if I'm wrong. But as a seven-year-old, I can't imagine that you would know fully the sort of story of Orson Welles and the making of Citizen Kane. So what was it when you were a kid about this movie? And it can be as simple as you like, because I watched The Red Shoes and I would be like, I like the ballet sequences as a seven-year-old. And then as you grow up, you're like, I like the, you know, themes and whatever. 
what was it about Citizen Kane as a seven-year-old that you were like, this is awesome. I'm going to continue watching this. The story. Mm. And I have to preface this with the fact that I've always been a very unusual person as far as my, uh, my love for certain things. Uh, this, uh, you could ask my brother, my, my brother, Zach, who co-hosts the show with me, Mari and Kevin, you could talk to my parents, you could talk to any of my friends. I've always been a person who loves story. So like when I was a kid, like seven, eight years old, whatever, in first grade, I was already, I was already reading at a third grade level. So while a bunch of kids in first grade are reading things like Arthur or Peter Rabbit and stuff, I was pushing ahead and wanting to read like the classics illustrated versions of Oliver Twist and Frankenstein and Red Badge of Courage or like Jane Austen novels. And that's just who I was. So at seven, eight years old, when I saw Citizen Kane, it was the story that grabbed me. Like as much as we're talking about Orson as a person and the makeup and the camera techniques, we talked a, little, a fair amount about the story. And mm. that is what I love about this movie is the fact that the narrative keeps you going for as much as you, as anyone who thinks like, Oh, old movies, they're so bland and boring. They're not like the modern action flicks of the day. It's like, no, this is they a compelling film. To be you, better. Yes. Old movies had to be better than the new movies because they couldn't rely on fight scenes and special effects. They had to rely on story and storytelling. Right. And that's why this movie keeps grabbing me, even as a 27-year-old. Even, you know, even when I'm in my 50s, this movie will still be one of my favorites because the, the narrative to tell the life of Charles Foster Kane is so different from anything else even out there by modern standards. And if you wanted me to measure, all right, let's use uh, Lincoln starring Daniel Day-Lewis. You know, a brilliant movie about one of, about, uh, about an American president who, you know, you know, quite literally risked everything to try to help to, to heal a fractured country. The performances of Daniel Day-Lewis and, and Sally Field and everyone in Lincoln compared to Citizen Kane, I will call it equal. Citizen Kane goes a step above the rest. Why? Because the story. The story of Lincoln, we know about it. We know what to expect. With Citizen Kane, you didn't expect it to be a bunch of different like, you know, like narratives to create a cohesive whole. You, don't ex you weren't expecting this reporter to go and get the story from, from Dorothy Comingore and uh, Everett and Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein or Joe Cotton as Jen Leland or and I'm, uh, George Caloris as Walter Park Thatcher. You don't expect that. Even by today's standards, I've yet to see a movie. Yeah, yeah you get flashbacks and stuff, but to get what? You got Susan Alexander, Bernstein, Jed Leland, and Walter Thatcher. That's four different narratives four different people talking about one person from four different perspectives and yet it it should be a mess yeah it should be a hot mess and it's not no it is so brilliantly interwoven that it still is amazing and still mind-blowing today you know yeah. 2020 is we're set we're decades away removed from when citizen kane came out but you know years later it is still one of the most seminal movies in motion picture history as much as things like Casablanca and even though 
it is a very unfortunately racist film gone with the wind or charlie chaplin's the great dictator or breakfast at tiffany's the sound of music those are brilliant movies but 2020 we still have citizen kane why because it sticks in the minds and hearts of the viewing audience whether you are a diehard orwellian lover or whether you are like yourself a passionate cinephile i was genuinely surprised with how good it was and how compelling it became um, I genuinely was. I was expecting to be like, this isn't game. And I was for a little bit. And then the story picks up and you're just like, oh man, I've been watching this solidly for like 45 minutes. What the fuck? Right. And it's a two hour movie. <laughs> it's a fucking long movie. Um, I have to bring this up because this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And I'd like to know your opinion. Mm. I read that during filming, Orson Welles started treating Dorothy Cormingor terribly, deliberately humiliating her in front of the cast and crew in order to make her hate him, strengthening her performance. I think that very often this happens to women, not always, but very often. And is it a lack of trust on their ability to act or is it just an excuse to abuse? Either way, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. Thoughts. I'm not a fan either. Yeah. I, if you want to hate a character, then talk about it, you know, dialogue, fig- like, you know, build the narrative, build the narrative off camera, but don't be a complete bastard. For the yeah, sake of a good performance. Jerk. No, no. There are better ways to get a performance out of somebody than to be an abusive prick. And again, that is why like, I, I, I love Orson Welles as a creator. But as a human being, I find him to be a very detestable person. And, and I, that's the vibe I always got, you know, with these hotels, there's so often some hidden sort of um, thing about it. And, you know, very famously on the set of The Exorcist, a lot of the male actors ended up getting like physically hit by their director. And Hitchcock obviously like unleashed countless amounts of abuse on his actresses. And it, it's just something that comes up a lot, especially for old movies, of course. Um, that shouldn't be, of course, you know, that, that, as you say, like, trust the actor to give you a performance. And if you don't trust the actor to give you a performance, fire that actor and get a different actor that you can trust to give you that performance. Don't hit the actor no. in order to elicit a particular response. I find it very cruel and unnecessary. And to be fair, um, I guess you could say that he didn't like hit her, but he like, you know, this is emotional abuse. This isn't, this isn't fair. This isn't on. And it's tricky to try and have these conversations and separate them. And then, you know, you wonder, should you be separating them? Should you, should you take the racism out of Gone with the Wind in order to appreciate it? Or do you have to see it for what is there and you know it's it's very complex gone with the wind um it, it, i watched it religiously uh, for years i absolutely adored it and lately i've really I mean, you can see i've taken it off the wall the poster <laughs> <laughs> because i've been like you know is this right anymore can can you separate the two in and continue in this willing ignorance in order 
to enjoy something or should you be like this is this happened and it it i i'm really not explaining myself well you know art and artist do you still listen to michael jackson etc that kind of question is basically um right. you know, as you said orson wells is intrinsically tied in with citizen kane this is the only thing i could see really that was like that's really shitty and it is shitty um it's a very it? yeah i do and and not to and not to try to blindly fall in love with the movie like some like if people were to hear this discussion and say oh he's loved this movie since he was a kid he just loves orson welles it's like no if you're missing the point i said my he is a hero to me for a lot of different reasons but morally no he's not a hero he was as human as you or me that does not excuse what he did Mm-hmm. but he has feet of clay as we all do yeah, yeah now yeah. does he deserve to be put on a pedestal cr- for a creative reasons yes that is, i will tell i will tell anybody that that you know orson wells has earned his place as a creative personality alongside people and alongside performers like i'm like like audrey hepburn like Catherine hepburn mm-hmm. like julie andrews like humphrey bogart like he earned his place, he earned his fame, but as a person, he is not a good person. So mm-hmm. I do not condone the abuse, emotional or otherwise, that he put Dorothy Comingorth through to get her to hate as the character of Susan Alexander. But I could still look at that movie at the end of the day and enjoy it and love it because of what it means to not only the motion picture industry, but also what it means to me personally as one of my first forays into classic cinema. Yeah. And, and, and there are other examples, um, for example, uh, other examples for, uh, to use an example, on the Triple C podcast, when the news came out about Cameron Stewart and Warren Ellis and how for years they had been doing all of these horrible things to young creatives, to young women who wanted to break into comics and stuff and how they had been grooming them for years through conversations and dialogue. No, fuck that. That's horrible. Actually, I went and I got rid of all of my Warren Ellis graphic novels, uh, except for Planetary, but that's mostly for the artwork because John Cassidy's artwork is brilliant. But like Transmetropolitan, Mm. like I got rid of all of my trans metropolitan graphic novels. I got rid of my, uh, I got rid of my signed Batgirl trade. That is, that was written by Cameron Stewart with Babs tar on artwork. And it's signed by both of them. I got rid of mm. it because I was like, I love Babs's artwork, but I can't keep this knowing how, what a horrible human being Cameron yeah. Stewart is. And that's not trying to excuse what Orson did, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it is, the fact that with Stuart and Ellis, what they were doing was going on for years and nobody, and, and it's only, and, and I applaud the, the women who are speaking up about this and I feel mm-hmm. sickened that I supported the, supported the, their work. And that's why I can't do it with Orson. It's a little bit different because he has been dead for so long that it's, it's easy. It's not, I can't forgive him for what he did. Yeah. But I can but still, it's not oh i don't know how to it's, really say yeah that. no it's it's really difficult to articulate but you're you're articulating it really well i completely know where you're coming from i think you're making a a really good argument i know what you're saying it's that sort of like it's not as simple as he's not hurting anyone anymore 
but it's that sort of he's not there to have the he's not there to do it anymore yeah and like the art is there and you can choose to ignore it or you can choose to enjoy it whereas when the art is still being produced it's more of a statement to be like i no longer support this ongoing well project. i mean even after even and i'll use warren ellis as an example because i've been i'd been a fan of his work for years because he was just absolutely bonkers and absolutely brilliant i cannot in good conscience read any of his stuff anymore because of knowing what he did again mm -hmm. i'm only making an exception for planetary because of john cassidy's art yeah 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 that is my exception but mm -hmm. transmetropolitan and other stuff he did i can't love it uh mm -hmm. one other one ignition city but that's mostly because he did pastiches of well-known sci-fi characters like uh flash gordon and dale dale arden and buck rogers and that thing was just so fucking crazy that I still I still like it, even though Warren Ellis is a piece of shit. Example, he has a... Do uh, you ever see Flash Gordon, the movie? No. Nope. Nope. Fun, fun movie. Uh, so he does a character in there, Doc Volkovic, who is a homage to Dr. Zarkov, Flash Gordon's friend, the scientist. First time you meet Volkovic, he busts out of his house with a ray rifle saying, science will fuck you, as he eliminates <laughs> a couple of gun runners who are about to blow away the female, the female protagonist. And he like, and it's, and it's not even like a white knight thing. It's more like a, all right, you need somebody to even the odds. She is doing great on her own, but you know, sometimes even like a strong character needs a little help to make to, to, to get through the rest of their story. And also because it's so fucking funny that his first line is while he's blasting these guys, science will fuck you. It's like, Warren Ellis, you're a piece of shit, but damn, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. The, it's the world is a complicated, complicated place. It is. Um, <sighs> but yeah. Anything else on Citizen Kane? My final thought is that. If you have not watched it, if you take anything away from this conversation, give it a try. If you don't like it, then you can at least say that you saw it yeah. and gave it a chance. That is, I will never hate anybody for seeing a movie that I love and saying, I just didn't get it. I'm like, that's fine. You gave it a chance. That's all I'm asking give it a chance just as much as everybody in my life who has recommended new stuff to me has said just give it a chance i give it a chance and nine times out of ten i actually really really like something because that's also just how i'm wired like my brain is so open to new everything that it's hard for me to really dislike something unless i just am like i can't get this at all like, I've read this book five times. I watched this movie a dozen times. I still don't get it. I'm sorry. I don't know what you want me to do. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, that's, that's fair. But I want to. I agree. Def definitely watch Citizen Kane. It's on BBC iPlayer if you're in England. Uh, um, it's on HBO so Max. Fun. It's on HBO Max over here in the States. If nice. you, uh, uh, or you can just go, I think you can also get it from other platforms, but. And I've got the almost I've, definitely. Oh, I've got the DVD. I've got the. That does not I've got the, me. <laughs> it was a Christmas gift from my grandmom. She gave it to me for Christmas Aww. years ago. I just asked for Citizen Kane, and then she got me like the fiftieth anniversary DVD box set. I was like, "You didn't oh my God, know? Amazing. Like I didn't want." <laughs> 
okay, this is great, but I was just going to be happy with like a Blu-ray or something. What the heck, grandma? <laughs> like, I mean, I love Orson Welles. And if you want proof, I don't know if you're going to put any of this footage out for your, for your uh, audience, but this is how much I love Orson Welles that I have not one stack, but two heaping stacks of books about the guy in my personal library. <laughs> One of which is a the three vol the uh, at this point three volume uh, deep dive uh, biography about him written by uh, your your Simon Callow. Mm-hmm. So if you want that, that's really good. I want to just cap off my take on Citizen Kane with a quote from Roger Ebert, uh, who is a brilliant film critic. I I always respected him because he was honest. Like I. And also because he's a and he's a Chicago boy. I got to give my love for my Chicago boys. Yes, back he was me, me and me and Roger get way back. Yeah, I'm trying to find the exact quote. <laughs> um, here we go. Citizen Kane knows the sled is not the answer. It explains what Rosebud is, but not what Rosebud means. The film's construction shows our lives after we are gone survive only in the memories of others, and those memories butt up against the walls we erect and the roles we play. There is the cane who made shadow figures with his fingers and the cane who hated the traction trust, the cane who chose his mistress over his marriage and political career, the cane who entertained millions, the cane who died alone. And that to me is a very simple summation of the movie. And it's actually probably one of the best ones from a critic. Yeah. That I've, that I've read because there are people who have written whole, you know, college papers and, you know, books about, maybe not just Wells, but like whole chapters to Citizen Kane, but Ebert summed it up so perfectly. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's true. And that's one of the things that like I try to take away from a movie like Citizen Kane and from the life of a guy like Orson Welles is that when I am gone, whatever I have done on this earth, I hope that I am remembered by those who loved me most for what I did. And if I am remembered by those who hated me, then I am remembered, not for the sake of reputation or fame or glory, but at least I know that I'm still remembered. And I would like to actually say that I'm very happily have made no enemies in my life. So if I go through my whole life having made no enemies and just friends, then okay, I can live with that. If I have enemies at some point, well, I didn't do it. It wasn't for lack of trying to be friends with them. If people hate me for a reason, then that's fine. It's effort to hate. It's it's a lot of effort to hate. So, you know, it's the other side of the coin of love. If if you're hated and remembered, then you still made enough of an impression to last. Yeah. Um, there's actually a quote from Orson that always really stuck with me. If you want your story to have a happy ending, it depends on where you stop it. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, that's classic fairy and, tale, isn't it? Well, it's not even fairy tale. It's more it, it make it can be, but it in makes this sense. sort in, of you know the happily ever after is not the end. Right, and and that's one of the things that I find tragic is that a, a guy like Orson he died alone. Uh, he died. I, I'm trying to remember precisely. He was found, I believe, slumped over his typewriter. He had stayed up late working on his next manuscript or film script, and he he died he died alone, but he left behind a reputation and as a, as a creative personality and a legacy of excellence that is hard to not love. Uh, Mm -hmm. Where was it? Oh yes. He went to his house, back his house in the Hollywood Hills and he was 
working in the early hours typing stage directions for a project that he and Gary Graver were planning to shoot at UCLA. And he was found on the 10th of October. So his, the anniversary of his death just came around. Uh, he was 70 years old from a heart attack. 70? Yeah. So he was still yeah. pretty I mean, young by certain standards. Hmm. And I, that's, what I, that's why I brought up the happily ever after quote, because it makes you think about what kind of life will you lead as a young person, as a middle person, as an older person, and what will you leave behind? I don't mm. want, I want to be able to know that when I grow old and die, that I at least did something good on this earth, whether as overtly as creating wonderful movies and powerful characters like Orson did, like Audrey Hepburn, like Bogart did, like all these brilliant performers did, or whether it's just that I touched the lives of the people around me, you know, my friends and family and my loved ones. Either way, I just want to know that I did something to make this crazy, crummy world a little bit better. And I'm sure you will. Mm. And have done. Yeah, depends on the who you talk is, to. trouble is, you won't know, will you? Not unless you put me, not unless you can copy my consciousness into a computer. Well, maybe by the time it happens, we will be able to. <laughs> I, wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind being a robot. Six feet tall, six foot, six foot seven and uh, ripped like Arnold. Humanity wouldn't trust you. Isaac Asimov say, saw to that. I don't care. I'm a robot. I'm awesome. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. How about, I be like a, how about I be like a cyborg or something? I'll be That's a cyborg. Even worse. Man, I can't win. I want to be. I can't win. You can't put my brain into a machine. You can be in a, a head in a jar, like in Futurama. That's even worse. That's the least threatening. I don't want to be threatening. I just don't want to be a head in a jar. You think I want to be like Richard Nixon in Futurama, where he yells yeah. at people to like refill the liquid, and there's always a risk of getting knocked over? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be or like what happened to like the episode with uh, Nimoy in Star Trek, where he's just a head in a museum. I don't want that. <laughs> If I'm gonna if I'm gonna be a, if I'm gonna be stuck in a machine, I want to at least be able to go outside and walk around. That's fair. <laughs> Hi, I'm a weirdo. I'm a nerd. What do you expect from me? <laughs> um. So tell us about Triple C. All right then. So the Triple C podcast is myself, Mari, Kevin, and Zach. We are a Chicago-based podcast. Uh, we are a nonprofit. We we have our jobs. We don't honestly make any money off of this thing and quite frankly i'm content in that we just are four geeks who are all very dear friends in the case zach is my brother we get together every week new episode comes out every monday at seven o'clock in the morning chicago time which would be what time over in uh the uk gosh that's got to be like what mid-afternoon something like that Midday. Midday. There you go. All right. So that's midday over in the UK. There you go. And we just talk about geek stuff. And we talk about, we talk, we, the three C's stand for comics, culture, and cosplay. So we'll talk about, we do reviews of movies, comics. We talk about the latest news. We, t we have, we do interviews. We just did an interview uh, last week, or I don't know, however uh, long for when this, uh, for when this, uh, for when our episode will come out with uh, Nelson Lee who had a starring role in Stargirl as the Dragon King and also had a lead role as the uh, Chancellor in Disney's Mulan. So that was an absolutely lovely conversation. And I encourage anyone if you That's want to so actually- cool. Nice guy, actually. Very, very unsettling to be able to talk to a guy like that. It's like, I just saw you in this movie and I watched you on TV and now I'm talking to you like we're next door neighbors. What is going on? 
But if there's the one thing that I love about doing the podcast is that we, tr- we, we try to talk about stuff that is real. Uh, for example, even though we are four white people who are completely underqualified to talk about the unfortunate experiences of so many of our brothers and sisters who are uh, black and creators, we dedicated a whole episode to Black Lives Matter. Why? Mm-hmm. Not just for solidarity, but because all of us were so thoroughly disgusted by what was and is still happening that we're like, we can't not talk about this. Mm-hmm. Not for the sake of press, not for the sake of good optics. We need to talk about this. This is something that we cannot be silent on. Or mm-hmm. when the news broke about Cameron Stewart and Warren Ellis and their years of grooming young women who just wanted to break into the comics industry. We dedicated a whole chunk of the show to that. Why? Because we are not afraid to stare into the public eye and talk about the real shit. Pardon, my, fr- pardon my French. This is so good. It's important. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be normalized as a conversation. You've actually put it better than I probably could have. Thank you for that. I'm like, I'm a little embarrassed that, that I'm, that that I'm over here trying to make the case. And it's like, nope, she's got it. That's why this is, that's why she's the one running the circus. We came to it together. It was a team effort. All right. I'll accept that. Fine. I'm (laughs) I'm still embarrassed from, no, I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed that you quoted me. Oh, I'm embarrassed about that. (laughs) Why? Because I don't think I'm quotable enough. Well, clearly you were because you were quoted. If you want to check out that quote, head over to the Instagram. Where can people find you on Instagram? All right. We are on Instagram at the Triple C Podcast. I'm trying to pull it up. If, if you want an easy way to find us, go to, go to Emily or Emily's page for Why This Film Podcast. We follow one another. Just search for us. We're, it'll be easier to find us that way. We're also on Twitter, Facebook. If you want to find us on any of your podcast podcast aggregators and listening platforms, we're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeart Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasting fix. Please, please, we would love to hear from everyone through rates and reviews on iTunes. Why? So that we can make our show better for you, the listeners. Because this is not just four geeks getting together to talk about geek stuff. This is four geeks getting together who want to produce the best show that they possibly can. And we can only do that through helpful feedback and criticism, or even just one line like, I didn't like this. Okay, fine. We'll take that critique. Why? Because it means that we need to do better. We want to make our show the best possible show it possibly is for you, the listeners and fans out there. Because at the end of the day, we're all just nerds trying to make our way in the world. Yes, we are. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a big one. This was like, this was up with the, with the exorcist. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> gonna have to watch Citizen Kane after all, Emily. <laughs> Not gonna get out of that one. Thank you so much for coming on. And we'll see you next time on Why This Film. Bye! So I've been asked to do some promo for these two lads, Ryan and Paul, for their podcast, Cold Callers Comedy. Quite honestly, I've never listened to it because it sounds like sh- but what I can tell you is that my show, Artie's Artist Acts, is one of the segments, and that is an absolute peaky blinder you can't miss out on. Whoa, what the hell, Tom? You meant to promote our show, not slag it off. I couldn't care less, mate. Well, you should. You're on the podcast. Yeah, how about a little gratitude? Bane, show them how grateful we are. You're a precious podcast. 
gratefully accepted. Um, we're not giving it to you. Admirable. What a mistake. So, yeah, listen to my show, Cold Callers Comedy, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and all the other podcast platforms. The podcast rises. Come here. Why This Film Podcast has a Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for artists and creators to get paid. Head to patreon.com forward slash why this film podcast and you can select a tier. For £3 a month, you can join Camelot and enjoy early access to episodes, including seasons one to three. You'll get to vote in polls and get a personal shout out on the pod. For £5 a month, you can join Fern Gully with instant access to everything from Camelot. Fern Gully members can also enjoy bonus content, live episode voting power, plus access to monthly movie night. Grab your popcorn and a drink of your choice as we pajama up and watch a movie together remotely. And for £10 a month, you can join the Enchanted Forest, where on top of everything from Camelot and Fern Gully, you can be part of a live episode where we all discuss a movie chosen by you. And if you're not into 80s and 90s animated tiers, you can skip all that and make a custom pledge of an amount that suits you. Or you can head over to co-fi.com forward slash why this film podcast and buy me a coffee with a one-off payment. We will be adding hot chocolate to that coffee and probably cream and marshmallows and sprinkles, but you don't need to worry about that. Thank you to all who donate and thanks to my patron David for supporting this episode on Patreon. Why This Film Podcast is my happy place. I love chatting to guests and revisiting long lost movies and I hope you do too.